Well, Christmas is upon us, but I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. I really think that talking about the promises of God are, are very, very important, not just at Christmas time, but whenever. And this message today talks about a marvelous, magnificent promise that God made to Noah, actually. We're going to look at the Noahic covenant, and um, it's a long introduction. I tell you at the front, it's a long introduction because I couldn't very well just burst into the Noahic covenant without giving some background on covenants. You've got to understand the idea of covenants in the Old Testament. So before we get started, let's ask God to meet with us and open the scripture up to our hearts and minds. Our Father, we thank you so much for the worship that we just enjoyed and for this season that we're embarking upon, a time to remember that you sent your only begotten Son, that he should die for us. Father, a plan that was made before the foundation of the world, and we are grateful for that eternally. And Lord, we only see, but through a mirror dimly right now, what that all entails. But you've given us little breadcrumbs throughout your Bible, your written word, that opens our eyes more and more to who you are. It's a self-revelation. And Father, um, to your character and your covenants are a, a big window opening up to us and letting us see your character. So I pray for your blessing upon today. I pray that you help us to uh, grab hold of these truths. And Father, that it will be uh, something that we can take away that's new and vibrant to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So God chose Noah to actually restart his divine plan. To see mankind as his reflection in the world. You remember when I talked about the image of God is actually we reflect his image to the world. We're image bearers. And after Adam's failure and the decline of humanity displayed by their incessant sin and rebellion all the way up to the flood, God chose Noah to be like a second Adam after the flood. God even blessed Noah and his family with the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And God's very first words to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, he said, but I will establish my covenant with you. And that was kind of a, a, a foreshadowing of what was to come because he explains his covenant more clearly in chapter 9. This is the first mention of the word covenant in the Old Testament. It was God who initiated it with Noah. The superior always initiates to the subservient or um, the, the one that the covenant is being made with. And the word itself, covenant, occurs 20, in 27 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. It's, it's, a very, it's what we called when we were doing translation work with the Taliabu. It's a key term. Key terms are not only just linguistically important, they also carry a theological wallop to them. And so you take note of those key terms. It's found in 11 of the 27 New Testament books, and the actual meaning of the Hebrew word, berith, is difficult to determine. There, there isn't one succinct little uh, 
understanding or, or definition that you can get. It means to enter into an agreement with another, and we get that from agreements between men that are all throughout the Old Testament too and, and during uh, in ancient Middle East. But this is God. And when it comes to God, it's entering into another agreement that is binding, right? Webster defines it as just the simple idea of covenant as a binding and solemn agreement made by two or more individuals or parties to do or keep from doing a specific thing. It's a compact. I like the word promise. It's a promise. In the Old Testament, such agreements can be seen between two individuals like David and Jonathan. You remember that promise that they made to one another in 1 Samuel 18. Or between two families, Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. Or between two nations even, Israel and the Canaanites in Exodus 23. So all of these are examples of promises that are made to one another, but these are between men. It was used to define a marriage, as you see in Malachi 2.14, the covenant that you make when you marry another person. And even for international trade agreements in 1 Kings 20, verse 34. So all of these, I'm going to be moving at a fast clip here because, to be perfectly honest with you, I just remembered it was Communion Sunday today. So this is always cutting my sermon short, but I'm going to get it all in because there's just too much here. So there's a suzerain and vassal covenant. Susan, suzerain is, is the, the, the sovereign and vassal is the subordinate. And, and that's a covenant that in ancient Middle East was struck by a king to his subjects, if you will. But we're talking about God and his creation. It's a usage and an arrangement imposed by a superior on a subordinate where there is no parity. It's not a mutual agreement. It's the superior making the agreement and the subservient one or the subordinate one taking it and absorbing it. It's seen as a legally binding promise made by God towards men. Men do not have parity with God as much as we might think we do. And therefore, the covenants of God, it is God alone who sets the conditions, and it's God who establishes the covenants. He grants them. Now, there are five. Some would say six. I go for five major covenants in the Old Testament that show God working in human history. You have the Noahic. That's the first one that we're going to look at today, but not for a while. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant. And some would say there's a priestly covenant or Palestinian covenant, um, but I, I roll that into the Mosaic covenant. It's part of the Mosaic covenant in my thinking. So you've got Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, the promise to David that God made to him, and of course, the new covenant. So here's an example of a superior imposing a covenant on a subordinate, the Noahic covenant. Superior? Unsubordinate. Noah didn't have anything to say about it. God made the covenant with him. You see him saying in 618, but I, God, Elohim, I will establish my covenant with you. Okay? Top down. Again, we see, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you 
and with every living creature that is with you, and the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you. All that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Genesis 9, 9 through 11. And then over in 9.17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 9.17. And one last one in uh, Genesis uh, 17, we hear him making his covenant with Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. You, you get the idea from the top down. This is the sovereign with the subordinate receiving the promise. Now, when the covenant constitutes an obligation solely by the master to the servant, such as the Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic covenants do, and the new covenant, it should be considered as a grant. That is, God alone is obligated to keep the promises of the covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant is a little bit different because it was a treaty that should, uh, showed an obligation of the servants to the master. And I always think, when I think of the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments, I think of a little uh, rhyme that I, I heard a long time ago in Bible school, do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Okay? It wasn't a covenant, um, it, was a, it was a promise that if they would do everything, God would reward them. But nobody could do it. And it was a covenant that was made to show them their own sinfulness be before a holy and a righteous God, the superior that gave the covenant. But that was a conditional covenant. And that's the only one of the five that's conditional. So although the term is used in the New Testament 33 times, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to delve into those because that's not the subject today, there's one more detail that I need to address before looking at God's covenant with Noah. In the Old Testament, there are phrases that use the specific verb associated with covenant making. This is really interesting. The verb is the Hebrew karath, karath, and it means to cut, to cut. Now, we've all heard of the phrase, hey, he just cut a deal for that new car. He cut a deal. That comes all the way from here. That's where we get the idea of cutting a deal, cutting a covenant, okay? In Genesis 15, 18, in the Legacy Standard Bible, it translates just like this. It says, quote, on the day Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram. On the day Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram. And this is graphically displayed in the same chapter where the pledge of the covenant was to be animals cut in pieces and laid out in a long line on either side. And then the parties of the covenant would walk through them. But this one was unique. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. And I'd like to read just a couple uh, sections for you. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. This is God speaking to Abram. And he said, Our Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him 
and cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. In verse 12, drop down, it says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. I want you to know that sleep was not a normal sleep. He didn't just fall asleep. God sent that sleep to him. Now drop over to verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Now you've got these two lines of animals that have been split in half, right? And there's a pathway through them. And ancient Middle Eastern uh, covenants were cut like this where the two that cut the animals, that was kind of the sign of the, the covenant between them, almost like a blood covenant, right? And, and the two would walk through those animals and that would seal the deal. But listen to what happens here. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. Where was Abram? comfortably sleeping, right? So he had nothing to do with this covenant. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. You want to know what the land diameters and dimensions are? That's a big swatch of land. There's other people living in that land other than Israel right now. So that's where we get the idea of cutting a a covenant or cutting a deal comes from. So this covenant that Yahweh cut with Abraham was unilateral or unconditional. It was unconditional covenant where Yahweh was the sole party responsible to carry out its obligations, uh, which depended on his faithfulness and his fulfillment. In the above example, it was Yahweh who, after putting Abram to sleep, walked through the pieces alone. He alone would fulfill the covenant. Abram had nothing to do with it. He was the recipient of that covenant. And here's where the four covenants previously mentioned come in. They are unilateral or unconditional covenants. The Noahic covenant, which I'll get into details in that in a moment. The Abrahamic covenant. We see that kind of listed out the promise part of it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Davidic covenant, where he promises David that he will have a throne eternally. Someone of his lineage will always sit on the throne of David. And Jesus Christ, in the millennium, will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And then the new covenant. The new covenant answers the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the old law. Do this and live, the law commands, gives me neither feet nor hands. In the new covenant, God puts the knowledge of himself in the heart of men so that men can keep his ways. The Bible presents no evidence of any obligation required of the recipients of those four covenants. So you got the Noahic, and you have the Davidic, and the new covenant, as well as the Abrahamic covenant. Now finally, though there are many covenants recorded in Scripture, the vast majority are between men and nations. I'm pulling out the most major covenants between God and man. The number of divinely initiated covenants is much less. And historically, premillennialists, which we are, we believe Jesus will come back before the millennium, have identified five or six covenants if you put that priestly one in there. Okay? 
the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenant. Now, classical Reformed theology, you may have heard the term, oh, I'm a covenantalist. I'm not a dispensationalist. Okay? You need to listen to me. I'm going to give you a real 10,000 high view of covenantalism. Classic Reformed theology, on the other hand, generally concludes that there are essentially one overarching covenant in Scripture, the covenant of grace. Now, that's easy. That flattens everything out, right? Um, The covenant of grace. Many Reformed theologians teach that there was a covenant of works before the fall, but then the covenant of grace replaced it in Genesis chapter 3 and is seen throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, this is not discovered by the biblical language. This is key. This is discovered as a theological construct that theologians have assumed, well, this must have been what it is. It's through interpretation, their own interpretation. Whereas the five major covenants that I mentioned to you, they are all biblically stated as being covenants. And the reason that I hold to those is because they're, they're tied to the text. We understand the scripture and interpret the scripture with a literal hermeneutic. We take, take the word at its most logical meaning. And when God says, I'm going to cut a covenant with you, we take him at his word. That, that is a covenant that God made with man. So that is not the way covenantalists or most deeply reformed men that don't believe in dispensationalism, don't believe in interpreting the scriptures in a literal hermeneutic fashion, come up with that covenant of grace. Now, quick overview. The Noahic covenant, this is a general, unconditional covenant initiated by God, and it shows God's mercy toward all mankind. That's why it's general. And we'll get to this in more detail in a minute. Both redeemed and unredeemed are blessed by the Noahic covenant causing it to rain on the just and the unjust and assuring the ongoing uninterrupted cycle of seasons, right? In summer and winter, in darkness and in light. And we'll get to that in a moment. The sinfulness of man will not derail his plan set forth. Okay, God's plan is not derailed by the sin of man in this covenant to Noah. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, in this covenant, God displayed his unmerited favor and unilateral choice of Israel, and she became the apple of his eye. A special people called out from among all the nations and through whom the Messiah would come. And God made that covenant with Abraham, as I said in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. The Mosaic covenant. In this covenant, God reveals his holiness and man's sinfulness. Daily and annual sacrifices were a constant reminder of the need for shedding of blood for the remission of sin, but they just kept sinning year after year after year after year until Christ's fulfillment, where he suffered once for all and sacrificed once for all. Now, the priestly covenant, which I believe is part of the Mosaic covenant, is where there will be a perpetual priesthood that carries all the way through to the millennial temple. So there is a, a, a promise to the priesthood and so forth that, that there will be a priesthood that carries on through. It's in abeyance right now because of 
a lot of uh, circumstance. I'm not going to get into it. But I see that as part of the Mosaic Covenant. So I don't count that as a major covenant. So the Davidic Covenant is the fourth. God promised the perpetual reign of the descendants of David, ultimately fulfilled in Messiah and his reign during the millennium. And fifthly, the New Covenant. God's arm is not short to continue to extend an outpouring of grace and a promise through which he would put his law, which man was incapable of keeping under the old covenant, within his people's hearts, writing it on their hearts. It's a beautiful, beautiful covenant. You find it in Jeremiah 31. Now these covenants and understanding them will inform a person's understanding of scripture. The way you interpret these will tell you how you interpret the rest of Scripture. Because they are based in the text of Scripture. They're not a theological interpretation. It reflects a way of interpreting the Bible and will impact interpretation all the way up to the end-time theology that you hold, your eschatology. Dr. Irv Busnitz, who is a close friend of mine and and a helper to me, he was uh, the vice president of uh, Master Seminary. He was a great guy. He cut me so much slack coming from the field and doing my Master of Divinity work. He said, ah, you don't have to do those courses. You wrote commentaries in a different language. You don't have to take Bible basics, obviously, and, and everything else. He was just such a blessing to me. Well, he's an Old, Old Testament uh, scholar, and he wrote this, quote, when God enters into a unilateral, the unconditional covenant, guaranteed only by his own faithfulness. When God enters into a covenant void of any human requirements to keep it in force, when God establishes a covenant that will continue as long as there is day and night and summer and winter, then great care must be taken not to erect man-made limitations that would bankrupt the heart and soul of these covenants and annul the glorious full realization of all that he promised through them. Their significance cannot be overestimated. End quote. And that's the way I feel. That's why I'm taking the time to just explain a little bit about covenants before we go into the text. So we're going to go into the text now. Genesis chapter 9, please. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky and everything that creeps and on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth, with you, all that comes out of that ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, with all flesh that shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign 
It's a covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall, it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And how utterly sick is it that the homosexual community has taken the rainbow as their sign. Audacious comes to mind. Arrogant comes to mind. Because it's God's covenant that he'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. Now Noah, I want to talk to you about the recipients of this promise that God made to Noah. Noah and his family, obviously, right? They're the first that we would think about. Even from God's first interchange with Noah, as I read in in Genesis 6.18, he promised to establish his covenant with Noah. Noah is signified by you. I will make my covenant with you, Noah, and Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and Noah's wife, and his son's wives. Eight persons in all were saved from the flood. And the New Testament affirms this truth in 2 Peter 2, 5, where we read, and did not, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. There it is, stamped. Now, this is a, a great apologetic for the flood being universal. Because if he only established it with these eight people, that just doesn't work. What, the rest of the people don't get the promises of the Noahic covenant? So this is, this is proof of a universal flood. And when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. But there was more to his redemptive act in that time of the flood. There are more participants. How about the animals? He made a covenant with the animals. Even God's original promise to Noah in 6.18, God included the animals as part of his great rescue project. In 6.19, God specifically told Noah to bring with him and the others seven of every living thing of all flesh. You will bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And further in 7.2, he says, uh, he added to his list, take with you every clean animal by sevens. Animals are part of this covenant. Can you imagine that? The creator God making a promise to animals. Animals are precious to God. Like humans, animals were formed from the ground. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. Genesis 2.19. And when God breathed the spirit into Adam's body, made from the earth, Adam became nephesh. That's the Hebrew word for a living being or a soul. Genesis 2.7. Remarkably, the same Hebrew word, nephesh, is used of animals as it is for people. Okay, getting out on a limb here now, pastor. We are specifically told that not only people but animals have the breath of life. They are nephesh. 
If you don't believe me, take down these references. Genesis 1.30, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 6.17, Genesis 7.15, and 22. God made animals thinking and linking them both to earth and humanity. Now, I'm going someplace with this, so hang on. The usage of the Hebrew and Greek words nephesh, and in the Septuagint, it's suche, or it looks like psyche, okay, suche, that's the Greek for it. It's often translated soul, and we're referring to humans. Nephesh is translated suche in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, that's a Greek written Old Testament. The fact that these words are often used of animals is compelling evidence that they have non-human souls. So there is the difference, right? We were created in the image of God. Humans are created in the image of God. Animals were not created in the image of God, but they have a nephesh. Now this is, this is beautiful. You dog lovers, you're going to love me after this, Okay. It wasn't until the advent of the 17th century enlightenment that the existence of animal souls was even questioned in Western civilization. They never even questioned it. Throughout the history of the church, the classic understanding of living things has included the doctrine that animals, as well as humans, have souls. But they're not human souls. We are different. We have been made in the image of God, not so animals. Now, John Wesley wrote a sermon, and in my research, I just, I can't believe you pay me to do this stuff. I mean, thank you. I just want to thank you for this. John Wesley's sermon, he preached a sermon on this very topic, and he said this, quote, All the beasts of the field and all the fowls of the air were with Adam in paradise. And there is no question but their state is suited to their place. It was paradise, perfect happiness. Undoubtedly, it bore near resemblance to the state of man himself. For the creatures had gratitude to man for benefits received and a reverence for him. They had likewise a kind of benevolence to each other, unmixed with any contrary temper. Sin hadn't entered the garden yet, nor death. How beautiful, how beautiful many of them must have been We may conjecture from that which still remains, the beauty of a horse running, the beauty of my poodles looking in my eyes, okay? Animals are beautiful, many of them. And that not only the noblest creatures are beautiful, but even those of lower order. And they were all surrounded, not only with plenteous food and with everything that could give them pleasure, pleasure unmixed with pain, for pain was not yet. It had not entered into paradise, and they too were immortal. They too were immortal, for God had not yet brought death, neither hath he pleasure in the death of any living thing. But how far is this from being the present case? In what a condition is the whole lower world to say nothing of inanimate nature, wherein all the elements seem to be out of course and by turns to fight against man. Since man rebelled against his maker, in what a state is all animated nature? Well might the apostle say of this, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now. Romans 8. 
this directly refers to the brute creation in what state this is at present we are now to consider. As all the blessings of God in paradise flowed through man to inferior creatures, listen to me, man is the image of God. He is a reflection of God to all of creation, especially to those animals that are lower than he. As all the blessings of God in paradise flowed through man to inferior creatures, as man was a great channel of communication between the creator and the whole brute creation. So when man made himself incapable of transmitting those blessings, that communication was necessarily cut off. And the intercourse between God and the inferior creatures being stopped, those blessings could no longer flow in upon them. You think sin was not devastating? I talk about it as a great rift. It happened in heaven first with Lucifer going against God and all the angels that followed him in his rebellion. And then he brought it to earth. And so it became between man and God, God's region on earth. And it also became between man and man. But here we're seeing it became between God and animals and man and animals. So in addition to those eight human beings, God also made his promises to the animal kingdom he rescued from the flood. Why did God rescue all the animals from the flood? I can't imagine what the millennium is going to be like, folks. But I look forward to it. Now, there's one last thing, one last recipient of Noahic blessing in the Noahic covenant, and that's the earth. The earth is also included as a beneficiary. Look at 9.13. What does 9.13 say? I set my bow in the cloud, and it will be for a sign of a covenant between me and... Anybody there? The earth. He made a covenant with the earth. With the earth. Well, wasn't there a curse put on the earth because of sin? Yes. This is amazing. Me and the earth. This is God's sign that his promise is in effect, is the rainbow. And God cares so much about the earth that he set it in place, a law that every seventh year, listen to me, every seventh year, Israel was to give the land, the earth, rest and let it lie fallow. Remember that? That, that Sabbath rest that it was supposed to do, and it neglected to do it for 490 years. <laughs> Israel, those stinkers, they just kept planting through. They never gave the land rest for 490 years, and so guess what God did? That's part of the reason for their 70 years in the Babylonian captivity, folks. That was one year for each year that they failed to give the land rest on that seventh year. Therefore, God punished Israel for 70 years in Babylon, one year for each of the disregarded Sabbath rests for the land over that 490 years. If you just take 490 divided by 7, you'll get 70. And you can see that, if, you know, biblical proof, right? I don't, I don't like talking off the top of my head. Second Chronicles 36.21 will tell you exactly what I just said. Romans 8 shows us that we groan for what creation groans for, Redemption. Genesis 3 shows us that God put a curse not only on mankind, but also on the earth and animals. Human beings and the earth are inseparably linked. We are of the earth. We are earthy. Jesus Christ is an immortal body, supernaturally changed, 
but he's still in a mortal body, the one that he came back and visited his disciples with at the right hand of the Father now. This is important. We're not going to live up in the clouds playing harps. Okay? We're going to live on this earth when it's renewed. And we're going to be in glorified bodies to enjoy the glorified earth. This is good news. The earth was cursed because of Adam's sin, and it will rise on our rising. And together we fell, together we will rise. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We're going to be singing that, I think. Yeah, Joy to the world. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, Peter said, the home of righteousness, 2 Peter 3.13. A new earth, which is a, a renewed earth. It's, it's reclaimed earth. It's a redeemed earth. It's a resurrected earth. That's coming. And together with redeemed humanity and a redeemed animal kingdom, when God sets things right. That's what we have to look forward to, people. <laughs> I don't know what those animals are going to be like, but I have a lot of fun thinking about it, and you should too. Now, the extent of the Noahic covenant. How far does the Noahic covenant go? All the way. <laughs> All the way to the end. Why do I say that? Look at Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Remember that sacrifice, that massive sacrifice that Noah uh, gave to the Lord? And he said to himself, the Lord, Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and will never again destroy. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now look at this. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. That's the extent of the promise, the Noahic promise. As far as all the way till the end, until the earth does not cease, or until the earth ceases. While the earth remains, everything will be in place. He has guaranteeing that his ongoing development of his kingdom and salvation plans will unfold in history. He's guaranteed it. We can count on it. Every winter, you can count. It's going to be cold up here. Right? But it breaks, and then we have summer again. And, you know, it's light right now, but you can pretty much set your watch. It's going to be dark pretty soon. That is ongoing because of God, the Creator's promise to Noah. After the flood. And he'll keep that in place. And Jeremiah, this is wonderful. All of the other covenants are kind of based in this. That's why it's a general covenant. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22, you can mark it down or read it to you. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 22, he kind of goes back to the Noahic covenant and he says this in talking about the Davidic covenant. He says this, okay, quote, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, quote, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We just read it 
in Genesis chapter 8. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. Who's that sound like or what's that sound like? The Abrahamic covenant, right? Jeremiah takes all these covenants and said, listen, if day and night stop, then the rest of this is all bets are off. Well, it hasn't yet. So all bets are on and God's promise is being fulfilled. And I will multiply my descendants of David, my servant and the Levites who minister to me. So it's within God's plan for Jesus to rule over heaven and earth so that they are unified and made into one. God's presence will be on earth, Revelation 21.3. And God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, bringing heaven to earth. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together. Under one head, even Christ, Ephesians 1.10. The earth is important. Animals are important. We, as human beings, are important to God. Now, there are some future implications for this Noahic covenant. And I'd just like to list a couple of them because we should be really encouraged by this. This is like the beginning of Genesis, he makes this promise. And it's still in effect today. Number one, we have confidence that the cycles of nature will continue while the earth remains. Day and night, cold and heat, summer and winter. And this is until God redeems nature, as we read in Romans 8. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Don't tell me we're not linked with a new heavens and a new earth, that our redemption is intimately involved with all that God's doing. And we get the, the thrill of experiencing that now. That's why, you know, pecky fighting amongst us, each other, stop it. <laughs> Bob Newell, stop it. That's my counsel to you. Quit arguing with each other and start thinking about all the blessings that we have. We just got done with Thanksgiving. And I'm sure that there were some families that this stuff was going on, right? Why? Because we're sinful. Try to mortify that flesh and that sin and be grateful. We have confidence because God promised it. And number two, we, we are also assured that there will be a future for the animal kingdom as well as the earth. And this is best seen in the passages that speak of the millennial kingdom, but they they show the harmony amongst the animals and that morphs into the eternal state. In Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, I've talked about this just recently, where the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the calf with a young lion. And the lion will eat straw like an oxen. And the weaned child will put his hand on a viper's den and not be afraid. That, that's during the millennium. That's when the earth is being restored, and that's when the animal kingdom is restored. Now, this third one is good. This wonderful situation with the redemption of the earth and the animal kingdom extends even into the eternal state with the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. 
I want you to turn to Isaiah 65 with me. Isaiah 65. There's only 66 books there, so second to the last book. Isaiah 65. I want you to look at verse 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So we know where we're at, right? We're not talking millennial kingdom. We're talking about the eternal state, the recreation of or recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. And then look at verse 25. What's it say is going to be on that new heaven and new earth? The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be their serpent's food. And they will not do evil, no evil, or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. So there you have those animals that are living in harmony in the eternal state, what we call heaven, right? It's not in the clouds, people. It's on a renewed earth, better than you've ever seen, better than the Rocky Mountains, better than Lake Como. It's hard getting past that. Better than any place you've ever been on earth that just has taken your breath away because we're all under the pale of a curse now, including the animals. So please rejoice with me. And all this has been promised by God, Elohim, who is not able to lie. His character and very essence is truth. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. You tell us in Peter, it's by your great and magnificent promises that we're to live our Christian lives. Lord, let us be encouraged with these magnificent promises that you made to Noah and his sons and their wives, but also to the animals and to the earth and even to us, Father. Thank you so much for your word and how how rich it is. Father, let us meditate on these things and rejoice in our hearts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.